This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce our first speaker of the morning. And we have to pay rapt attention and uh, if she allows time for questions at the conclusion of her talk, we have to be very concise because she is headed off at 9, what time? 9.15 for her Uber to the airport to be en route to Taiwan for an invited lectureship. And um, we are honored to have this morning Dr. Yvonne Wu, who first spoke at the conference 16 years ago. And um, her I think she was pregnant with her daughter, Clara, who is 16 now and is here at this conference. It really is a pleasure to see Yvonne and Clara today. Yvonne is professor of neurology and pediatrics at UCSF and expert on newborn brain injury and risk factors for cerebral palsy, which constitutes much of today's presentations before we segue into all autism. And Yvonne is currently running a large trial testing a new therapy that could help prevent cerebral palsy. Welcome. Thank you so much. Um, It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here, especially um, uh, with all the other distinguished um, speakers. I'm unfortunately running off, as you heard, so I won't be able to stay for the question-answer session, but I would be happy to take a few questions at the end if there's time. So um, I'll be talking today about some of the work we're doing and also what a lot of other people are doing to find ways to prevent CP, specifically in newborns with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and I have nothing to disclose. So um, we're going to start by just reviewing what we know generally about causes of CP and why I want to focus today on hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, which is another term for birth asphyxia. Um, Then we're going to talk about the standard of care right now for treating babies with this condition, and that is to cool them. That's actually a um, cooling blanket that you see that baby is sleeping on. Um, And then we'll talk about the work that we and others have done to look at whether adding another therapy, erythropoietin, might provide additional um, neuroprotection. And then finally, in the final few minutes, I'll rush through a few other um, experimental treatments that are being studied. So, you know, all of you in this room have treated and taken care of patients with cerebral palsy, and you know that the list of potential causes is very long. But I think it's helpful to think in broad categories. Um, And it's pretty well established that half of all children with cerebral palsy are born preterm, and they are susceptible specifically to brain injury of prematurity. And so we're not going to talk about this group today. We're going to talk instead about term infants. And they make up half of the kids with CP. And you'll see in the green slice of the pie that about 15% of those will be found to have abnormal formation of the brain, so a brain dysgenesis. Um, And then there's a small sliver of the pie that that constitutes postnatal injury in the first month of life. But the majority of infants who are born at term who have cerebral palsy 
um, are thought to have a relatively normally developing brain in utero, but then something happens in the prenatal, perinatal period to injure the brain. And what do those injuries look like? Um, well, so if you see, really the only way to know um, clinically is to do a brain MRI to see what kind of brain injury occurred. Um, and so, you know, if a child has severe quadriplegic cerebral palsy, um, one of the more common findings is um, this one up here. If you look here, the, the basal ganglia and thalami are these deep gray structures of the brain. All that white signal indicates injury to those deep gray structures, and that will typically give you severe spastic quadriplegia. Um, alternatively, you might do an MRI and see abnormal signal in what we call the parasagittal areas of the brain, just um, parallel to the midline. Um, that involves more of the white matter and overlying cortex, so that's called watershed injury. Um, and these kids might have less severe motor abnormalities, but have more cognitive issues and seizures. Um, if a child has a hemiplegic cerebral palsy, you can do an MRI. Often what you'll see is a stroke, an area that, um, in this case, it's an arterial stroke where there's a clot that formed in one of the arteries. You can also get a clot in the venous structures here in the superior sagittal sinus, and that can cause injury to the brain. You might see a child that had a hemorrhage early on. Um, and so these are all potential causes um, of the motor disability that we see. So we're going to focus today on HIE, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And that specifically gives you these typical pictures, the basal ganglia injury and the watershed injury. And why are we focusing on this particular issue? Um, I think that, um, first of all, although it doesn't account for the majority of that pie of the causes of cerebral palsy, it is an important um, condition that accounts for a significant proportion but most importantly, it's well-studied in animal models. Um, it's well-studied in cell culture. And so we have a, a basic understanding on a molecular and cellular level of what happens when the brain has um, an insult where there's decreased oxygen and blood flow. Um, and because of that understanding and because of the animal models that are out there, you can, do, you can devise and test neuroprotective strategies to try to help the brain recover better. Um, and so I sort of think of it as low-hanging fruit in that way because of all the great work that's been done by basic researchers um, and, and is certainly ripe for clinical trials. So, um, okay, so what is HIE? So as the term implies, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, um, it implies that there's reduced oxygen and blood flow um, to the brain. And... This is just a schematic showing that you know, the blood that should be red is blue, suggesting there's hypoxia. And because of the decreased blood flow, you often get the deep gray nuclei that are um, specifically susceptible to this insult. That is where you see the injury, as we saw in the MRI scans. And then you can also get injuries specifically in the white matter, just lateral to the midline. So um, this is the condition that we're talking about. So um, HIE, as I said, is a very important condition. Um, not, you know, it's, it's not just an important condition here, but especially around the world. Um, it occurs in one to three per thousand life births, but in low- and middle-income countries can be as high as 26 per thousand. Um, in the U.S., there are about 12,000 infants who suffer from this every year. Um, and worldwide, it accounts for almost a quarter of all neonatal deaths. 
Um, and if it's untreated, uh, this, this is from the day and age when I trained in the 1990s. I mean, basically, um, you know, there wasn't much treatment available. And untreated, about a third of severely affected infants will die in the newborn period. Another third will develop long-term motor disabilities. Um, and, you know, this is another whole talk in itself, but what, what is causing the HIE? Um, you know, occasionally, 5 to 15%, depending on the study you look at, you can put your finger on what caused it. You can say, oh, there, there was an abruption, so major maternal blood loss, or the uterine, there was a uterine rupture. Um, and in those cases, you know something happened to decrease the oxygenation and, and blood flow to the baby's brain. But the majority of the time, we really don't understand what caused it, which means we also really don't know how to prevent it very well. Um, and that's, again, a whole other talk in itself. But as I mentioned, um, you know, things have changed since I first trained in the 90s because we, um, the basic, I shouldn't say we, the basic scientists realized that after this initial period of insult, the decreased oxygen and blood flow to the brain, there's, you know, an addition, definitely an initial period of primary cell death where some of the neurons will die. But then there's this evolution of injury that occurs over hours and days. And a lot of these intracellular mechanisms that lead to secondary energy failure, leads to a secondary delayed phase of neuronal death, are you know, pretty well studied in animal studies. So there's apoptosis, so that's like programmed cell death. Um, you can ha- you know, there's a lot of glutamate um, toxicity, excitotoxic injury. There's inflammation. All of these things take time. And that gives us a window to intervene. And so the first, the next part of this talk is really to, to focus a little bit on hypothermia. And so, you know, we, the nice thing is that hypothermia is started within a few hours after birth and is kept on for several days and counteracts all these things that are happening to cause further brain injury. Um, and this is just a schematic that shows that hypothermia is a potent neuroprotective therapy in these babies. It protects the brain. And the reason is that it has all these properties. It has anti-excitotoxic properties. So here's a glutamate NMDA receptor, and you, um, you actually have decreased excitotoxicity. There's decreased um, reactive oxygen species and antioxidant effects. Um, there's anti-inflammatory effects. This is, a, this is a cell nucleus, and there's decreased apoptotic cell death. So it has multiple effects on this process. Um, and so you would think that it would be very, um, very potent. And in fact, it has been shown now definitively in multiple clinical trials that um, this treatment reduces death or, um, or moderate to severe disability. Um, and therefore, it's become standard of care. And so... Um, there are two ways of doing this cooling therapy. You can either cool the whole body at birth, or you can put on a cool cap and just cool the head. Both have been found to work, um, as far as we know, equally well. Um, most places um, do body cooling. It's easier to do. You use, you use a cooling blanket, and you can still do a full EEG because you don't have a cap on your head. Um, it has to be begun by six hours of age. Um, that's you know, typically the, the way it's used. Um, and we cool the core body temperature down to 33.5 degrees for 72 hours, and then rewarm them gradually over six hours. So this is now standard of care. What does this have to do with cerebral palsy? Um, so as I mentioned, it's been shown to reduce death and moderate to severe disability. Um, this group did a meta-analysis looking at, I think, six or seven large multicenter clinical trials testing the use of hypothermia. 
and you can see there's reduced um, death, reduced disability. And if you look specifically at cerebral palsy, there's a relative risk of 0.62. So the, the risk of cerebral palsy in these babies with HIE, if they get cooled, is 38% lower um, if they get cooled. And you can take these numbers and calculate what we call a number needed to treat. And it comes out to eight. So you, for every eight babies with HIE who get cooled, you can actually prevent one case of CP. So this, is, this was a game changer for us. I mean, I trained and we spent... Um, you know, over, I guess, from the 90s until 2007, when we saw babies with HIE, we would support them, treat them if they had seizures, but there was no other specific therapy. Starting in 2007, we started cooling at UCSF in the standard of care in most um, larger facilities. Um, and so, yeah, these are just additional um, data from the three largest cooling studies. The NICHD study in the U.S., multicenter. Um, Toby was a European study, and then there's a large cool cap study. And if you put the results from those together, you know, if you get cooled, these babies have a much, you know, significantly lower rate of death or moderate severe disability. And their risk of CP, as I had mentioned earlier, untreated is about a third. Um, but if they get cooled, the risk comes down to more like a quarter of the babies. So clearly this has been an effective therapy. But I show this slide to remind us that we still have room for improvement. I mean, that's still not acceptable. We want to get that down to zero if possible. So, um, so that's how um, I came into the picture. Um, so after this came about, the, the, now the big question is, what can we add to cooling? Now that cooling is standard of care in the U.S., what can we add to cooling to further um, help the brain recover and have less injury and less long-term um, implications after HIE. And I'm going to talk first about erythropoietin and then talk about some of the other things that are, that are coming down the pipeline. So erythropoietin, everyone always asks me, EPO, like what does that have to do with the brain? Everyone's heard of EPO if, you're, if you have any sort of medical background. It's also just one of the most you know, widely prescribed drugs in Medicare um, records uh, for treatment of anemia. So erythropoietin is uh, essentially a hormone is produced by um, the liver and the fetus and then eventually in the kidney. Um, and so it regulates hematopoiesis. Um, and it wasn't until the early 90s that um, people started noticing that there were EPO receptors in neurons um, in mice. Um, and then a few years later, it was reported also in human neurons and in all different ages. And so that started raising people's you know, eyebrows, like why are there eporeceptors in the brain? And um, this is just a schematic showing that um, EPO is actually quite abundant and the receptor is quite abundant. And so um, EPO is made both in astrocytes and in neurons. Um, the, the, in this diagram, EPO is represented by the little yellow dots. Um, and then the receptor is these little um, red ovals, and the receptor is ubiquitous in the brain. So not only on neurons and astrocytes, but also on microglial cells, on endothelial cells. Um, and so what has been worked out is that when, when the brain is exposed to hypoxia, um, this turns on a whole um, you know, array of intracellular pathways. Um, it turns on the HIF1 gene, which then turns on the erythropoietin gene, and then that leads to increased EPO, endogenous EPO production. There's also increased EPO receptor production. And it's thought that this is sort of an endogenous um, mechanism to protect the brain from hypoxia. 
And the question that people are asking now is, if that's the case, that when you, when you have this insult, that the body starts turning on EPO, what if you gave even more EPO? Could you actually help the brain recover even more? Um, and so what exactly is EPO doing in the brain? And this is a slide that um, my collaborator, Sandra Jewell, put together. I just think it's beautiful. I love showing this slide. But it summarizes so much information. So the first thing to know from this slide is that there are both acute effects and long-term effects. The acute effects are sort of similar to hypothermia. Right? I showed earlier all those different things that hypothermia does. Well, EPO does a lot of the same things. It has anti-inflammatory properties, you know, it decreases excitotoxicity, oxidative stress, all of these things. And all that is thought to lead to improved survival. Um, so sort of similar to hypothermia. Um, but one of the great benefits of EPO, we think, is that in addition to all of these neuroprotective mechanisms, there are also long-term effects. Um, and so, as you, as you mentioned earlier, it's an erythropoietic agent, and so this may lead to helping repair the brain. Um, it also um, has angiogenic properties, um, so you have more you know, um, repair of, of vessels. This one is really intriguing, and it's been studied a lot by my colleagues at UCSF, Fernando Gonzalez, who's a neonatologist, and Donna Ferrero. Um, what they found is that if you give multiple high doses of EPO, you can actually have um, stem cells in the brain after injury preferentially become neurons and oligodendrocytes. And they've actually shown that those migrate to the area of injury. And so it seems to not just reduce injury, but actually enhance repair. I don't show a lot of their data because we don't have too much time, but it's, it's really fascinating. Um, um, I mentioned that there, you know, there's a number, there's a lot of preclinical studies done of HIE and specifically of the effect of, of erythropoietin. Um, and so, you know, by now there are actually probably, you know, even more than 70 animal studies and specifically in neonatal animal studies that show that when you give multiple doses of EPO, that the brain has both histologic signs of improvement, you know, looking under the microscope, but also that the animals do better, they have functional improvements. And in general, when you um, look at these studies, um, there is a 40 to 75% decrease in the size of the brain lesion um, in, in uh, animals that are treated with EPO. And I'll show you an example of that. Um, so these are data from my collaborator, Fernando Gonzalez at UCSF. And... Um, so he has um, a rat model of uh, a stroke, essentially. So what they do is they um, do a carotid artery ligation on one side of the neck, and that decreases blood flow to that side of the brain, and you get a hole in the brain. Um, so you get a stroke. Um, but what, you, what they found is that um, here's an animal, a typical animal with no treatment. Um, if there are three doses of EPO given, there's a remarkable recovery of that brain. I mean, it's really dramatic. But, you know, this is just one example. So then they put all their animals together. And let me just go through this graph for you. The, this is on the y-axis. It's plotting the ratio of the volume of brain on the injured side versus the uninjured side. And so it should be one. It should be equal on the two sides. And so the black bar are the animals that have the injury. Sorry, the black bars are the animals that have no injury. Um, and so it's, the ratio is one to one. The blue bar are the animals who have the injury but no treatment. And you can see that, you know, the volume of brain on this side is, you know, like a third, I guess maybe 40% of what it is on the other side. The yellow bar represents 
animals who have the injury who got one dose of EPO only, and that dose was given right away after the brain was injured, and there's no difference. The red bar refers to animals that got three doses of EPO right away after the injury, 24 hours later, and then seven days later. And what it shows is that there's a remarkable recovery of brain. Um, and then they actually did this functional study. So the, the Morris water maze, you know, it tests the rats' like memory and um, ability to swim. And they found that the EPO um, 3 rats, the ones that got three doses, did just as well as the normal rats. So it's not just that it looked better. These rats actually performed better. And he actually has a lot of other really interesting data. I didn't have time to show, but um, it, it's... It's quite intriguing in the animal data. So then, you know, whenever you think about studying a new therapy in newborns, you want to make sure it's safe. Um, And one of the initial issues that came up was that around the time when I started coming into the picture and being interested in testing this therapy um, in the babies that we were treating, the FDA put a black box warning on erythropoietin. This is in, I think, 2009, maybe. And the reason is adults get... EPO a lot for a variety of reasons. Um, And it's been shown to cause hypertension, clotting problems. Um, There's, uh, you know, if you're getting treated uh, because you have cancer and you're going through chemotherapy, um, there's actually increased tumor growth. It is a growth factor. Um, There's increased, oh, and it's being tested for adults with stroke. Could adults recover the brain like this? And it turned out that that was very disappointing. The very large trials showed that there was increased death. And so, this black box warning came about. Fortunately, we also use EPO already in, in babies. We use it to, um, really to treat uh, anemia of prematurity. And so um, there are, <laughs> I actually went through and, and lit search and found 33 clinical trials of EPO being used to treat anemia of prematurity. And the doses were all over the place, um, but as high as 7,500 units per kilo per week. And you know, if you add up all the babies in those trials that got EPO, it was up to 2,700 babies. No concerns for, for safety. Um, and then um, you know, there, it's been studied in preterms. To, we're not going to talk too much about preterms today, but as you know, half of CP is from pre, uh, brain injury of prematurity. And it's being studied in that population. And again, there have been you know, over 1,000 babies studied and really have not seen a lot of concern. So um, with that in mind, um, we decided to start off with a very small, simple phase one clinical trial. So typically, a phase one trial is one where you're looking to figure out with a small number of, of patients, is it safe? Um, you know, what's the best dose? And so uh, what we did was we enrolled... Um, I don't say, I think I say that here. We enrolled 24 babies. And um, the first three got just 250 units per kilo. Then um, six babies got this dose. Seven babies got 1,000 units per kilo. And then assuming, you know, every time we we saw no safety, we were allowed to go up in the dose. The question here is, what is the best dose to use um, to treat babies? And the way we tried to get at that answer, and of course, no one, there's no way to know for sure, but the best way to guide that question is to look at what's been studied in animal models. And animal models suggest that if you can get a plasma level to this range, um, that that's most neuroprotective. If it's higher, it was not working that well. Um, and if it was lower, it was not working very well. And what we found was these seven babies that got 1,000 units all fell within that range, got you know, blood levels in that range. 
And also, it was the first time that EPO had been given with hypothermia. And um, so the question was, are, you know, can that be done? And there were no safety concerns. So um, following this phase one trial, um, we were funded by the Thrasher Research Fund to do a phase two study. Um, and so this is actually a um, true, you know, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-masked uh, uh, clinical trial where we enrolled 50 babies. And um, what we did was... Um, all the babies were cooled. Again, that's become standard of care. Um, this is just the you know, days of age on this um, axis here. And then on days one, two, three, five, and seven, we gave a dose of EPO, the 1,000 units per kilo that we had found in the phase one study. Um, and then all the babies, as part of clinical practice, get a brain MRI after they're rewarmed. Um, and then we followed them um, by phone initially, and then at one year we brought them in to do neurodevelopmental evaluation, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So this slide just shows you who was in our study. Um, it turns out, um, when we were all done, we found out that 24 babies had been randomized to getting the therapy, the EPO doses, and 26 had gotten hypothermia alone with placebo. Um, and this just shows that the two groups are quite similar in terms of you know, basic demographics, in terms of how sick they were with regards to their low APGAR scores, um, how they were delivered. Um, you know, cesarean section, an emergency section was actually required in a fair number, um, 71% in one group and 58% in the other. Um, and severe um, HIE was equally distributed between the two. So the first question we asked was, how do these two groups differ in terms of their brain MRIs? Um, so as I mentioned, after babies are rewarmed, typically they get an MRI shortly thereafter. Um, and our group, our collaborators at Washington University, um, had created and published a scoring system um, that specifically looks at um, how badly the basal ganglia and then this parasagittal injury looks in these babies with HIE. And so they um, didn't know which group the babies were in, and they scored um, both the location and the severity of the injury. And what we found was that the babies that got EPO overall had a lower MRI global injury score um, than the group with placebo. And this was actually quite surprising to us because it was a small study. Um, and so, um, and again, like these are the different parts of the brain that were being scored. But when you put the injury all together, there was less injury in the EPO treated group. Um, this slide shows that it's actually quite, quite, quite striking in that um, if you break down the severity of injury in the brain into these categories, mild, moderate, severe, that moderate to severe injury was only present in one of the EPO-treated babies and 11 of the placebo-treated babies. So pretty striking. MRI is just a biomarker. What we really care about is function. And so um, in this small phase two trial, we were only funded to follow them till 12 months of age. So we did the best we could at 12 months. We first administered the WIDEA, which is a parental questionnaire. Um, and this questionnaire, you ask parents um, about all these different you know, um, self-care, mobility, communication, and social cognition milestones. Um, so that was a questionnaire we administered. We also use the Alberta Infant Motor Scale, um, which is a standardized motor um, evaluation. Um, it's basically just seeing how well the baby does in prone, supine, sitting, and standing positions. 
And what we found was at 12 months, when we looked at the questionnaire, overall there was no significant difference between the groups. But if you look at the subscales, the mobility scale actually was um, the scores were definitely lower in the EPO group and the placebo group, and that was just barely a significant difference. Um, and this was corroborated by the Alter- Al- Alberta Infant Motor Scale, which again, the, the scores were higher, meaning there was better motor development in the EPO-treated group than placebo group. And again, this was um, by, by uh, evaluators who were masked to the, the treatment group that the child was assigned to. Um, so these were exciting results. We thought that this study concluded um, that this combination treatment of EPO plus hypothermia may reduce the severity of injury on MRI and may improve short-term outcomes. But I definitely wanted to spend a little time reminding us that this is a small study um, and it has major limitations because of its small sample size and because we didn't have long-term outcomes. And to really illustrate that point, I wanted to show these data to you. Um, So as I mentioned, this Alberta Infant Motor Score, the scores were higher, meaning there was better development in the EPO-treated group than in the placebo group. Well, it turns out that in this small study, um, we found out that there were two patients who had post hoc diagnoses of exclusion, meaning that you know, when you first enroll these babies, they have to be enrolled by 24 hours of age. You don't actually know all, everything going on in this baby yet. Um, two of them were found out during the rest of their neonatal stay in the hospital that they had other conditions that were going to make them have really bad outcomes. One had myotonic dystrophy, significant um, muscle disorder. Another one had a very bad brainstem malformation who actually um, died at one year of age, a little bit past one year of age. And it just turns out, because it's a small study, both of those were in the placebo group. And so they were going to do poorly no matter what. If you take them out, then the difference is really less striking and definitely no longer significant. Um, So just a good reminder of why. It's just interesting that in this study we were able to show why it's really important with small studies to be careful what you conclude. Um, And therefore... I think we have equipoise still. There really is not enough evidence to justify using this therapy. Um, And um, I will say part of the reason is, so there are three large ongoing phase three trials. We're now doing a large phase three trial we're calling HEAL. The Australian group, um, led by Helen Liley, is doing a large study with 300 babies. These are all EPO plus hypothermia trials. Um, This group, Juliana Pakai in Paris, um, had to stop their study early Um, they were going to enroll 300, but the reason was, with this small number, they actually found increased deaths in the EPO-treated group. So um, that gives us pause. It gives all of you pause, as I just heard. And so so I think, you know, the the jury's still out as to what we're going to find. But fingers crossed. So we actually, um, we were funded by NIH to perform this large phase three trial. And um, Sandra Jewell is a neonatologist up at University of Washington who spent her entire career studying um, how EPO uh, um, provides neuroprotection um, to infants. And so um, just to give you an idea of what we're doing, this is sort of a similar um, slide as that you saw earlier. So uh, again, these babies are all getting cooled for the first three days, which is standard clinical care. Um, we're actually um, front-loading the doses this time. We're giving four doses on days one through four, and then a final dose on day seven. Donna Ferrero um, feels very strongly, and Fernando Gonzalez, that this late dose is the most important for helping the brain repair, um, and they have some data to suggest that. 
Um, and then we're collecting blood and urine samples. This time we're following them by phone at um, 4, 8, 12, and 18 months, and then um, seeing them for a full evaluation, including a Bailey 3, um, a standardized neuro exam, um, and uh, you know, some ad- other additional evaluations at 24 months. Um, this is just a slide showing that we have 17 hospitals enrolling babies around the country, and our goal is that we have to enroll 500 um, to show that uh, there's, there's benefit to this. And so we're up to 180. Actually, this morning we just enrolled 181. Um, and so we'll be done with enrollment in a year and a half, and then we have to follow babies for another two years. And so um, it'll be 2022 before we know the answer. But um, one of the exciting things is that Australian study is using a very similar, um, almost identical uh, protocol. And so it may be that we can combine our data as well with them to, to really, if we don't have enough power even with this study of 500 to um, get a better handle on whether the, the, the therapy works. Okay, so I think we're doing pretty well for time. So I have a little bit of time to tell you about some of the other things that are being studied. And I kind of cut this section down um, with, for fear of not having enough time. But I, I think um, it's really interesting to think about what else is being looked at. So, um, so xenon. Um, Xenon is a noble gas, which, you know, from high school chemistry, you might remember what that means. I, I barely remember. But I guess it's, it's present in trace amounts in the atmosphere. And it was the first noble gas to um, actually be synthesized in a lab. And it has incredibly potent neuroprotective effects. Um, and, you know, through this mTOR pathway, it upregulates all these survival proteins, including HIF-1 I had mentioned earlier. So if you give xenon gas, you're also going to increase EPO as well as a lot of other um, upstream um, uh, survival proteins. Um, and, you know, a lot of anesthetic agents, you've probably followed this a little bit, that they've been found in a lot of animal studies to cause injury to developing brain. And so we are very reluctant now to um, sedate babies for MRI and things like that um, because of that potential risk of it being harmful to the brain. But unlike the other anesthetics, xenon is an anesthetic agent that does not cause any sort of injury to the brain in animal studies. Um, The problem is that xenon is very expensive, and therefore you have to use this closed-circuit device that will recycle um, the xenon, and it's also not FDA-approved in the U.S. It's been approved in Europe and Russia for um, at least five, ten years to be used as an anesthetic agent, but it's not available in the U.S., um, so just to give you some ideas, in England, they're, they're the ones that have taken the, um, the lead in studying this for HIE. Um, Mariana Thorison did this study. So she's actually, she created this very complex, I think, um, recycling system. And what she did was she gave 50% xenon for 18 hours plus hypothermia. Um, and what she found in these 14 babies was that it seems safe, um, which is, you know, again, this is one of those phase one studies, you're looking at safety and feasibility. Um, And interestingly, they found that whenever they stopped the xenon, not whenever, but often when they stopped the the xenon, the baby would start seizing. And then they would start it again, the baby would stop seizing. So they got the sense that it seemed to have anti-epileptic properties. Um, Then there's another group, Dennis Azopardi, he's another neonatologist in the UK. And um, they've done a, a larger study where they enrolled 130 babies. They called this the Toby Xenon trial. 
and they gave a slightly smaller dose, 30% xenon, um, started by 12 hours and inhaled for 24 hours. This is, again, with hypothermia. And they looked at these short-term outcomes, which is MRI findings, um, which they used as a biomarker to see if this, this treatment might actually lead to less brain injury. And it was quite disappointing that there were actually no differences in the two groups in terms of these early, early uh, neuroimaging um, biomarkers. Um, but they also saw a reduction in seizures. So that, that probably is going to um, be interesting. But I asked him last year, actually, and it sounds like they're not going to have long-term follow-up, which is just so disappointing. Um, I think it's a funding issue, and I think he's semi-retired. So I'm not sure we're going to actually learn too much more about that. Um, so that's one thing that I've been, that's one story I've been following. Um, this is another one, which is an, also was a surprise to me because I have this bottle by my bed and I had no idea that it would have neuroprotective um, properties. Um, so, you know, similar to what we talked about with EPO and with hypothermia, it has multiple um, properties in animal studies and um, that could be potentially neuroprotective. Um, and there are a number of human studies going on. There are two phase two studies, one that's been published and one that's ongoing, looking at different doses. And so um, stay tuned. Um, you know, the idea is that this is, you know, relative, very safe, um, and it's being studied with hypothermia, as in this study, um, but also um, as a monotherapy, perhaps in places where cooling's not available. So that's another story that'll be interesting to follow. Um, I took this picture of an article in Consumer Reports. It came out in, I think, January. It was a great article. Um, And, you know, uh, some of the other speakers and I talked about stem cell therapy. It comes up a lot in my clinic. People ask about all sorts of clinics out there that are coming around that offer, you know, everything under the sun. And um, this article, actually, in Consumer Reports, if you want to go see it, they actually talk a lot about what the FDA has and has not done to try to regulate those clinics is a really interesting article in Consumer Reports of all places. But um, So stem cells, um, is there a role? Um, I think really the, the main therapy that's being tested right now um, is aut- autologous cord blood. And so, you know, this is relatively safe. You know, it's non-invasive, and um, people talk about it having minimal ethical issues. The umbilical cord is actually considered medical waste. Um, And so taking the cord blood and then administering it back to the baby. um, uh, Animal studies show promise, although no one really understands the mechanism by which it might work. Um, I know of two studies that are going on. One is um, Michael Cotton's study at Duke, um, and they're cooling babies with HIE, and then also giving um, stem cells from cord blood. Um, And from clinicaltrials.gov, it looked like they would be done in 2019. Um, I actually don't know how far along they are. There's also a um, smaller phase one study at New York Medical Center. This was interesting because they're not only giving cord blood um, in these three aliquots on days zero, three, and seven, But they're also taking the placenta and extracting placental-derived stem cells and giving it on. So they're actually giving five aliquots of stem cells. So that'll be really interesting to see what happens with that as well. Um, But I I like this slide because I think it really summarizes what all the things that are unknown. I mean, there's just so many more unanswered questions um, in terms of how to use stem cells and why. Um, So, you know, certainly um, human... Um, umbilical cord blood cells, you know, pr- provide um, mesen- um, you know, mesenchymal stem cells that do eventually become neurons and glial cells. 
But there's just so much we don't know. We don't know what kind of cell is working, how it works. Um, we don't know how many cells to give, how often to give it, what's the best way to give it. Um, you know, Frank van Bell in, in the Netherlands has studied giving it intra, um, intranasally. Um, a group down in Southern California, you know, they give it directly intracranially. This is in, in animal studies, of course. Um, you know, a lot of other animal studies give it intraperitoneally. Um, you know, when should you give it and which patients would benefit um, and exactly how it works. You know, what are the actual humoral factors that are being released that are actually probably the most, um, the most beneficial? We just don't know answers to all of these questions. So I think it's still really early in this, um, in this field. And um, I wanted to mention that, you know, we just focused on orthopoietin because that's what I'm studying, and it's the most well-studied of all the cooling plus therapies that are being, you know, brought down the pipeline. Um, but there are many others. So there are actually clinical trials looking at magnesium sulfate. So we know that that is a, um, you know, potent neuroprotective agent in preterm infants and can prevent CP in preterms. It's also being studied in terms. Um, allopurinol is being studied in Europe right now. N-acetylcysteine is specifically anti-inflammatory. Cannabinoids, there's actually a company that's, that's starting to, um, wants to study this in addition to hypothermia for HIE. And so the thought is perhaps one day down the line, um, we can actually tailor a cocktail of neuroprotective therapies for individual patients and continue to cool them. I, this is from my mentor, Donna Ferrero, but I thought it was kind of cute. <laughs> So that's it. Um, I wanted to, um, I hope you got a sense as to, you know, why we're interested in HIE, um, some of the current therapies and therapies that are coming down the line. Um, I wanted to thank my collaborators and specifically my three main mentors who've been Donna Ferrero and Roberta Ballard um, and Sandra Jewell, who I talked about up at University of Washington, um, and Thrasher Research Fund for um, funding our work. And then Finally, yeah, this is a, a little girl that was in our phase two study of EPO, and she's done so well. And we want all our patients to end up like this. So, yeah. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.